Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Mary Rufel, whose latest book, the poetry collection Dunce, is out now from Wave Books. Mary is the author of many books, including My Private Property, Trances of the Blast, Madness, Rack, and Honey, Collected Lectures, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism, and Selected Poems, which won the William Carlos Williams Award from the Poetry Society of America. She is the recipient of numerous honors, including fellowships from the Guggenheim and the National Endowment for the Arts. Reading Dunce, as reading Rufel's poetry generally goes for me, was a bit surreal. Her poems can be both heady. In the Los Angeles Review of Books, Michael Klein called her the poet laureate of the city of ideas. And deeply every day. Domestic, as she puts it in our conversation, full of quotidian items like pins and grocery lists. But there is also always the presence of nature. Wild mountaintop flowers, jewelweed, moss. Her work always feels to me both of this world and of another, stranger one. In the fantastic Madness, Rack, and Honey, she writes, I am forever telling my students I know nothing about poetry, and they never believe me. I do not know what my poems are about, except on rare occasions, and I never know what they mean. So we don't really talk about that here. Instead, we talk about our constant urge to know what something is, quote, about. We also talk about embracing uncertainty, thinking about boredom, and navigating our conflicting desires to be isolated and in community, both as writers and as humans. You can hear a bonus segment from our conversation, in which we discuss the joy of correspondence and why letters are Mary's favorite literary form, by joining the WMFA Patreon community at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Being a writer is being a member of a tribe, and you are briefly passed the baton for a generation, and then it goes to somebody else. I mean, what's not important is that you're writing but writing in general, that it continues, that the act of literature continues. I want to read this passage from Madness, Rack, and Honey, in which you talk about poetry and how you think or or don't think about poetry. I kind of ask you how you want to go from there. So this is from a short lecture on Socrates, and you say, I am forever telling my students I know nothing about poetry, and they never believe me. I do not know what my poems are about, except on rare occasions, and I never know what they mean. I have met and spoken to many poets who feel the same way, and one among them once put it this way. The difference between myself and a student is that I am better at not knowing what I am doing. I couldn't put it any better than that if I tried. I just want to ask kind of how you like to talk about poetry. I I mean, I guess maybe taking that a step further backward, if you like to talk about poetry. Sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. Is that any different when it's your own? Well, in general, I would rather talk about poetry in general than my own work. What I find so interesting about that idea, and I think you you do say a similar thing elsewhere in Madness, Rock, and Honey, although I couldn't put my finger on it again before we spoke, about preferring wondering to knowing. It just made me think about, you know, how much we do have this kind of inclination to want to classify I think poetry especially, you know, is a form that is very intimidating to people. And so to kind of like approach it like like it's this puzzle to solve and it's like about something. Yeah, people don't like poetry because they feel they don't understand it and that they should be able to understand it instead of realizing that if it gives them pleasure, they have understood it. 
Is that kind of what you mean when, when you say that you often don't know what your own poems are about? I know it gives me pleasure to write them. If writing a poem didn't give me pleasure, why on earth would I do it? <laughs> but I can only speak for myself. I'm not speaking for all poets. I just can't imagine someone dedicating their life to something that does not give them pleasure mm -hmm. if they are free to choose that. Yeah, writing, writing gives me enormous pleasure. It's a suspension of time, and it's entering another world, and it is the unknown, and it focuses attention. It's a form of meditation, I suppose. Mm. Has it always been that way for you? I think it's always been that way, but you don't become aware of it until many years pass exactly what's happening there. I don't think when you're 13 and you're writing a poem, you might not be able to articulate at that time in your life what world it is you're entering. You simply know, you feel compelled to enter it, and it gives you great pleasure. Most teenagers who write poems, they're compelled to write poems. Right. They don't think about it. Yeah, and there is something about that, I think, especially when you're younger, that it, it does kind of sort of feel like the only way to express certain things that you're experiencing. Exactly. Exactly. I would love for you to elaborate on what you said about it kind of only becoming something you're more aware of over time. Because when you say that, what I think, it, trying to kind of apply it to my own process is how much self-consciousness I kind of have to battle when I'm writing and sort of how, how much I need to work on kind of ignoring or turning off a voice that's very overly critical and very judgmental. Oh, yeah. The, the way that you describe that sounds so freeing to me. Well, it's the, the freest activity in the world. When you're making something which is your own, you are free to do whatever you want. Sometimes if you're cooking and you don't follow the recipe for bread, it won't rise. But there are no recipes for poetry. <laughs> um, you can use a recipe to help you, but there's no guarantee. Usually self-consciousness, if you write a poem in a state of total self-consciousness, it'll show. Some readers may prefer that, which is their right. Like, I'm self-conscious now sure. because you're asking questions. But when I write a poem, there's nobody here. I'm not self-conscious at all. I might come back and look at what I've written in two days, and then I would be self-conscious about it, and I would bring to bear my opinions about what is working and what's not. But in the actual act of writing, I don't. I have this quote in my office from the musician Nick Cave, and he says a very similar thing about the songs not being inside you, unable to get out. They are outside of you, unable to get in or trying to get in. That's it. Yeah, I'm not thinking about the poem I'm going to write next week. I'm waiting for it. So patience is all. In our life in general, I think, you know, that's such a hard practice to cultivate. Oh, everything. Of course it is. Patience. And people, when they read poetry, bring so many expectations with them instead of being patient readers. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, the problem with poetry is its medium is language. And language is something that every human being uses every day. Mm -hmm. Because they use it every day, if they encounter language they do not understand, it makes them feel dumb. And that's very frustrating. So they turn away from it. But 
if you listen to language the way you might listen to music, poetry is very much music. Its origins are a song. If you listen to poetry the way you listen to music and let the expectations go of language set in an order that will be exactly like every other ordered language you have encountered in your life. My partner is a composer, and he says the opposite. He's kind of jealous of writers because people live in the medium all day, every day. And so he feels like it gives them this entry into the work. He talks about music the way that you talked about poetry, that, that people kind of come to it and are very intimidated and assume they don't get it. I love all music, every form. But I like what I like. Right. But I don't know music. I don't understand it. I don't play an instrument. I don't read music. I've not been trained in it. And when I listen to classical music, there are things I love, and then there are things that I feel are going over my head. And I have listened to composers talk about music, and it's extraordinary to me. Mm-hmm. Because they are hearing things I'm not hearing, because my ear's not trained. And obviously, that limits my appreciation of everything. I love all poetry, but I can't say that about music, because there are things I can't hear. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. That does make sense, of course. Do you remember falling in love with poetry? Oh, yes. I was a child. I was in elementary school, and I had an anthology of poetry chosen for children, although there were some poems for all ages, and I just devoured it. I fell in love with being alone and reading. I fell in love with being alone, and that is something that many people do not fall in love with, Mm. solitude and isolation, which in... The culture I grew up in were necessary for art. Now art is extremely community-driven and political, which, given our times, is as it should be. But the milieu that I grew up in, it was isolation. I think throughout a life, there's always a tension between our need for isolation and solitude and our great need for community and being with others and being part of a larger whole. And I think when we're young, our desire for community and being with others might be at its greatest point. And then there comes the long, long, many decades of being torn between the two and trying to find a balance between the two. And speaking only for myself, I'm now at the entail of my life and my need for isolation and solitude is much, much greater than my need for community and being with others. I know that. If you talk to any writer, what do they talk about? What's their greatest complaint? That they don't have time mm-hmm. in which to be alone and do that thing which gives them the greatest pleasure. And that is what they talk about when they get together, and that is what they commiserate over, and that is what they complain about. And I suppose that complaining does set them apart because most people don't complain that they're not alone. <laughs> They're kind of constructing their lives so that they're never alone. Exactly. They're constructing their lives so that they're never alone. Or on a Friday night, a a young person is going to 
complain that they're not invited to a party or there's no party to go to. Right, right. But I would complain because on a Friday night, there's a party I'm invited to that I'm expected to go to. <laughs> and that's a huge difference, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. I saw a thing the other day and it, and it felt very much like me and it said, no, you don't understand. I still want to be invited, but I don't want to go. <laughs> oh, I know that <laughs> feeling, of course. But that's exactly what we're talking about, because wanting to be invited is the need for community and being with others. But wanting to to not go is the need for isolation and solitude. And we are constantly torn between these things. Absolutely. And, you know, I think when I think about that, even with my own kind of discovery of writing and reading as a kid... I talked to another writer the other day for the show, and she said she described being a child and being annoyed whenever she couldn't just be reading. And that was kind of my feeling, too. But I think a lot of what I was looking for was kind of to see myself reflected back to me in the books, to sort of try to understand myself that way. Well, yes, because, and I think I've written and said this elsewhere, it's I know for me, when I was a child, it wasn't, oh, somebody else is lonely too. Right. Which thrilled me. It thrilled me. Oh, somebody else is lonely too. And there you have, in a nutshell, the isolation, but at the same time, you're with another isolated being. So the two coalesce. Right. Is it Rilke, that quote about lovers guarding each other's solitude? Do you know this? Oh, yes. Describing the ideal marriage yeah. of two solitudes bordering each other, yeah. which is absolutely true. It's also true of, of any friendship or any relation. I wanted to ask you about something I read the other day that I've just been thinking a lot about since I saw it. And if it brings anything up for you, that would be great. But it's actually from the novelist David Mitchell. Um, and I read it in the New York Times Book Review last week. Um, so it's it's Teo Brett talking about this piece of wisdom and advice that he gave her, which is that there are three different categories of theme that all writers have to contend with. First, there are the things all books are about, like mortality or love. Then there are the things a particular book is about, a man's relationship to nature, for instance, or the aftershocks of empire. And then there are the things every book you write are about, things to which you keep returning even when you think you've already dealt with them in your work. Seems fair to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you think? Do you have any handle, I mean, at this point on what those themes are for you? I think that's why I've been wrestling with it because that that's very forest for the trees for me, trying to figure out what those things are for me at this point. I don't really think you have to figure it out. I think... The, the, you simply let it happen and you notice, you pay attention and you notice, what do you think about? What are the things you care about? You don't, doesn't that sort of arise naturally? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm sure You it know, does. it's like knowing what flavor of ice cream you like. Right. What do you think those things are for you that you keep coming back to? I like to read. I like to write. I like to make things. I like to be alone. While I am making things, that's what's important to me. Do you think there are ideas that your poems keep coming back to? Well, that's for others to decide. Um, ideas that my poems keep coming back to. Well, anyone who's familiar with my work, and it's true of most poets, you're just writing the same poem again and again and again. They're all variations on the same poem. I can look at poems I wrote 
35 years ago, and I can see the same concerns going on. It's funny that evolution and how, at least, you know, in my experience, that can be true and still you kind of feel like you're thinking of the thing anew every time. Like, for instance, I, I find this a lot with the, I'm, I'm working on a novel right now, and I find that I will often have a realization, kind of forget it, and then realize it again a few months later and maybe go to make a note and find that the note already exists. And and so that that kind of idea of it being constant, the, the kind of obsession oh, yeah. or the theme or whatever being constant, but you kind of it comes in and out of your awareness such that you feel like it's a brand new thing. Absolutely. We repeat our realizations. We repeat our epiphanies. We repeat all of that. You know, life is short, but then for the rest of the day, you forget that. Right. (laughs) And then you come back to it. Um, Yes, of course. We both know that the planet is a single living organism and we are part of it. And I know this, but it's not in my mind 24-7. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When you're in traffic and you're mad at another driver, you forget that we're all one person. (laughs) It's very easy to forget. It's the simplest thing in the world, you know. That's something that I really love about your work. For me, what I feel like often can happen is is there are these very tiny sort of touchstones from the world. There are some very kind of everyday elements, word by word, and then they kind of bring in these much larger feelings or these much larger ideas and kind of stand in for something much greater. Well, I, I am an extremely domestic person, and I pay attention to that. So it would be that my realizations come through domestic detail, I suppose. That does make sense, of course. You know, a person can sit in a library and think and come up with a realization, but I don't see why you can't do it while you're dusting. Right. You know, you don't have to be in a university. Well, and going back to what we were saying about letting the work come in, I mean, this isn't unique to me, this idea, but all tasks like dusting and doing doing these sorts of very non- writerly things are kind of what allow that to happen. And for me, that is true. That is true. Have you joined WMFA's Patreon community yet? Patreon is a digital platform that allows fans to support creators and their work directly. When you become a patron, you pledge a monthly amount of your choosing, and I give you rewards like exclusive writings, notes of creative encouragement, and bonus segments, including a bonus segment from this very episode. That reward, by the way, is just $2 a month. By joining my Patreon community, you're growing the world of WMFA one writer at a time, plus supporting a whole community of independent creatives, from audio editors to graphic designers. And creative community is what WMFA is all about. Join today at patreon.com slash WMFA podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash W-M-F-A podcast. Thank you for supporting the show. Just out of the blue, not to change the subject, do you want to hear an astounding fact that I heard the other day? Please. That if you ask a 20-year-old, they can recognize over 100 corporate logos if you ask them to name tree species less than 10. Oh, wow. That sort of sums up where we are. I don't think I could name you more than 10. I mean, I could name them. I don't think I could identify them. I have been trying to make a much more concerted effort to be aware 
of my surroundings in this way. Are you familiar with Jenny O'Dell? She wrote this book, How to Do Nothing. No. She's really fascinating. And, and the book is kind of this meditation on productivity and, and kind of being a creative person and struggling with being in a capitalist society that kind of measures you in productivity. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Our society measures us by productivity and visibility. Right. And if you want to be invisible and do nothing, which is every artist's desire in terms of going into the studio and shutting the door, then you're not measuring up. Right. This comes up a lot on the show. This is certainly something that I've struggled with for myself is that idea of standing in your own value in that way, you know, saying that this is not in line with the system, but that's okay instead of... Oh, that's so sad. It's just so sad. It breaks my heart that people, so many people don't understand that their life is their own. (laughs) Their life is their own. Like you said earlier about um, being with yourself and, and doing the work. So Jenny O'Dell talks a lot about how a big part of her sort of practice in this way, uh, this idea of kind of doing nothing, which isn't nothing, is to become much more aware of her physical surroundings. And so she uses this app that I since have downloaded and been playing with that you can take a picture of flora around you and it will identify it and then you can tag it. And so you kind of get this picture of everything that you're living amongst that you don't notice. Which you should notice. (laughs) Right, of course. Yeah. I mean, it's all about noticing. At the same time, as human beings, we have responsibilities, which we cannot ignore, nor should we. If you are standing on the street and you see one person hurting another, it's your responsibility to register that, witness that, try to stop it if you can, or tell people about it. I'm using an individual isolated example, of course, to stand in for uh, larger acts of atrocity. But it, uh, again, I just want to bring in, you know, the other half of the equation is community and being with others. And we have responsibilities. We have responsibilities to ourselves and we have responsibilities to others as well. How do you feel like writing fits into that? I mean, you know, it sounds like there there are plenty of poets and poems in your life that have made a meaningful impact on you. Do you feel like poetry is a, and writing in general is a part of that kind of giving to somebody else? I don't think I did when I was younger, but I do now. Every generation exists to put into the current vernacular human concerns that have been written about since the beginning of time, but not in the current vernacular, obviously, because their vernacular was different. Right. So being a writer is being a member of a tribe, and you are briefly past the baton for a generation, and then it goes to somebody else. I mean, what's not important is that you're writing, but writing in general, that it continues, that the act of literature continues, or art, or whatever name you want to give it. When we're young, we think that the things that our generation believes and dedicates themselves to, that that's it. It will be like this forever. You find out in time that's not true. The world we are born into is not the world we die in. When we first spoke to schedule our conversation, you mentioned that, uh, 
He said, well, I could talk about boredom. So do you want to talk about boredom? Oh, I love talking about boredom. You see, boredom is very interesting because on one hand, you want to have the realization that if a person is totally aware, they will never, ever, ever be bored. The boredom is an impossibility. Right. But actually, even though you believe that, you have to admit there are things that bore you as an individual. And what was of interest to me is thinking about how much you can learn about a person by finding out what bores them. I could say offhandedly, I am never bored. But the truth is, there are books that bore me. There are activities that bore me. It seems like there's a subtle distinction that could be made between saying something bores you and then being in a state of boredom, like that we can tend to talk about as like, you know, I don't know what to do, or I'm restless, or I'm just staring at the ceiling. That like idea of, I guess, maybe idleness. I love staring at the ceiling, but I love being alone. I also love being with my husband and my dog. I suppose things that bore other people do bore me. I'm, I'm not too keen on cocktail parties. Mm-hmm. I find that a lot of, at least certainly the writers and artists that I know, and myself included, like, have a very hard time with small talk. Oh, is there such a thing as small talk? I mean, Bruce is full of small talk. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, for millennium, main topic of conversation among human beings is the weather. Mm-hmm. It seems like small talk, but it's not. It's all we have. And, you know, speaking of that, I mean, now that the planet's dying, I mean, talking about the weather becomes everything. And then for that to all be true, which I agree with you that it is, and then also that contradiction of us feeling so separate from nature being true. Oh, yes. I mean, we're not separate from nature at all. Right. But then again, try naming more than 10 species of trees, you know? Have you read the overstory? Yeah. The what? No, the, I have oh, not. Oh, you should read the overstory. It's all about trees, and it's stunning. No, I haven't read the overstory. I did read that book, that very popular book, um, The Hidden Life of Trees. Mm. And boy, that will change your perception the next time you stand under a tree or walk in a forest. I'm reading a book right now about sleep, which is slightly horrifying, actually. Why? I mean, every we're kind of doing everything wrong. It's the same concepts of trying, you know, to be an artist in a capitalist structure. It's like we are pushing ourselves and we're not sleeping enough and you never can get that back. And the damage that it does is very deep and harmful. And it's horrifying. I've now started doing this thing where just whatever time I end up going to bed, I just let myself sleep for eight hours after like whatever eight hours is, is when I get up. Cause it just, it scared me into that because it even six hours of sleep a night is just like really, really damaging to your brain and to a lot of your functions, a lot of your systems. But that idea of a natural intelligence, which I, I didn't need convincing about, but it's a really, it was very eye opening to learn just how much your body is doing. And when you learn about how really how sophisticated the processes that happen in sleep are in your brain, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And yes, and I have heard you can't make up lost sleep. You can't sleep four hours a night and then sleep for 12 hours on the weekend and think you've made it up. Right. I want to go back, if you don't mind, uh, to, to this topic of boredom. I'm very curious to just hear your experience. I don't really necessarily have a question because I think boredom and uncertainty both are very difficult concepts for me. 
and they seem to very, very much not be for you. <laughs> and so I'm just, I'm very curious about that experience. The experience of boredom? For you, yeah, like, like that's... I'm not bored, but there are, I mean, I'm, I'm seldom bored, but there are activities that bore me in comparison to others. Sure. Well, look, you know, you're a writer. Look at it in terms of literature mm-hmm. or music or going to an art museum. You go to an art museum. There are pieces that bore you and pieces that do not. Surely, have you had that experience? Oh, sure. No, I mean more kind of what, uh, and maybe you wouldn't call this necessarily boredom. I mean more of kind of that, like, the, you know, the staring at the ceiling moments, like those, that kind of stillness. But I'm not bored when I stare at the ceiling. Would you consider that part of your writing process? Well, yes, except I don't stare at the ceiling. I'm usually kind of wandering around doing a number of small different things. That's what I like the best. Like kind of like doing things around the house or something like that? Yeah, just having freedom of time in which to cruise. It's like mental cruising. I like that. I like that idea. Like if you're, you get in your car with no destination, taking a walk with no destination often leads to a poem. Not knowing where you're going translates into not knowing where you're going when you're writing. Is that idea ever difficult for you, that you don't know where you're going? You find that exciting, not scary, say? No, it's not scary. Uh-uh. You said on that same Between the Covers conversation that poems now for you often are coming in uninvited. Would you, would you still say that? Well, I, I really am at an age where I am disengaging. Unless a poem comes, I don't go out of my way to write one. Mm. But I'm writing more prose, and I do go out of my way to write the prose. I feel very lucky, very blessed and very lucky that poems still do come. What I mean is they arise spontaneously. Right. doesn't mean they're not work, right? I don't have to work on oh, them, sure, but they arise sure. spontaneously. Whereas with prose, it's more kind of like, okay, I'm going to sit down at my desk and, and work yes, on this. Yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. I also, I really wanted to talk to you about death. <laughs> I mean, I know, you know, that's a major theme. That's certainly not unique to any one person's work. But you have this line in Madness, Rock and Honey that I love that poets are dead people talking about being alive. Yes. And I just would love to hear you kind of expand on that a little bit more, if you don't mind. The dead and death is kind of an instructive thing. Oh, if I do, I'm going to sound insane. <laughs> but we're all dead. I mean, if you collapse time, we are dead. It's an inevitability. So we are dead, and the dead are alive. If we're all one person, and if you collapse time or take it out of the equation, I don't mean to depress or frighten anyone. No. When you talk about compressing time, I was just wondering if it's like, you know, kind of putting... Our sense of time as humans is obviously very different from, like, the world's sense of time or the universe's sense of time. That's for sure. That's absolutely for sure. When you compare our sense of time to a geological sense of Mm -hmm. deep time or a multiverse, even deeper sense of time, it's a nanosecond. Our life is a nanosecond. Right. It doesn't always feel that way, but it is. When you consider that, then every moment becomes precious and something to be thankful for. Is that what you mean about talking about being alive? Poets are dead people talking about being alive. 
I think what I meant when I said that were the words themselves, dead people talking about being alive. I mean, whenever you write a letter, a poem, a novel, a story, you are isolating yourself for the time it takes to write it. You're off in a room writing it. You are cutting yourself off from the larger community. It's kind of a death. That's true. Addressing the community by leaving it, addressing the world by leaving it. When you're alone in a room writing, you're not exactly out there living the outer life. And you hear writers articulate that sentiment, a lot of feeling outside of things, even when they're not writing, just in their being as writers, kind of feeling a little bit separate from everything. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, not that that's true. Oh, well, I don't, I mean, I don't feel separate. If I run an errand, I go to the drugstore to buy toothpaste. I don't feel separate. I often feel separate when I'm in a situation where I feel bored. Mm. If I'm in an art museum and an installation bores me, I feel separate. So coming back to boredom, boredom can be fascinating as it indicates where you feel separate. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a question that I like to ask everybody at the end of our conversations, the same question, and that's what does creative satisfaction look like for you? When I stop thinking about the thing I have created. I love that. When does that happen? I know a poem is not finished if I walk around still thinking about it. Uh-huh. But if it completely leaves my mind altogether, I'm satisfied it's ended. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been really great. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you so much. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. The best way to support WMFA is to share it. If you enjoyed today's episode, tell a friend or write an iTunes review to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBallastier or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Irissa Apentaku. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.